If you are able and will stand with me, we're going to read a, a little bit of the elongated section of Scripture in 1 Peter, verses 1 through 19. And um, the college would typically be mortified if we were going to start with 19 verses because they would know that that was going to take us three months. But uh, I promise you it won't. We're just going to do a, a gleaning of these passages. But it's going to be helpful for us to see the continuity of thought through the first 19 verses. So I'll read those. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. You may be seated. I've kept you standing long enough, but thank you. It's uh, important to get a sense of the flow of what Peter's trying to talk about here to the people that he's addressing. You know, Peter is someone that, uh, as, a, as a young believer, really kind of irritated me. He, um, he was loudmouthed. He was blustery. He was uh, brash. Uh, he was always, always, you know, the foot-in-the-mouth disease he practically invented, and uh, so Peter is someone that I just, just was a little bit of an irritant as I read his antics in the, in the Gospels especially. Uh, you, you think of the situation where he's in the boat with the disciples and uh, Jesus comes by walking on the water, right? And so he's walking on the water and the disciples are looking and Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, call on me. Tell me to come out and meet you. Well, who, who would ask that? But uh, Peter does. Jesus says, come. He gets out of the boat, starts to walk, 
and uh, of course takes his eyes off the Lord and, and, and sinks, and then he comes back in. And I can just imagine Andrew, you know, nudging Bartholomew, you know, as, as Peter's getting back in the boat. He's soaking wet, you know, the rest of them are dry. And uh, he's saying, I told him he should have never gotten out of the boat for crying out loud. And the, so that's Peter. He does that kind of stuff. And I think of the situation at the Transfiguration. Here Jesus is preparing for the crucifixion. He, he's preparing to go to Jerusalem. And... Um, He's there with Elijah and Moses, and he's transfigured, and they're surrounded in, in gleaming white, and the voice of the Father comes down. And according to Luke, Peter just, just now wakes up. He'd been asleep. And as soon as he wakes up, oh my gosh, Elijah, Moses, everybody's here. Let's, let's, let's camp. Let's do something. Let's throw a party. And uh, uh, it says that they afterward had to keep quiet because the voice from heaven said, you know what? Listen to my son. Peter, not you. Listen to my son. And so here's Peter just, you know, going on. And, uh, and then here Jesus setting his face like flint on his way to Jerusalem and tells the disciples outright, I'm going to be crucified at the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be mocked, tortured. And uh, Peter, you know, oh, 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 no, Lord, not you. Grabs him, not you. Get, me, get thee behind me, Satan. You're putting your, your affections on the things of man, not on the things of God. And uh, Peter, that's not enough for Peter to be rebuked by the Savior, right? He has to say, Lord, you got this wrong. You got me all wrong. I'm planning on going to Jerusalem with you to die with you. And then Jesus, of course, says, Peter, within 24 hours, you're going to deny me three times. So uh, I kind of struggled with Peter. Just, you know, he's, I don't know. But um, interesting, over the last number of years, as I've, uh, I've, as I've grown in my faith, as I've grown to know the Lord better, and uh, grown to know, love the Lord more, and to recognize his love for me, it's interesting that I have come to love Peter. I think of Peter at the, uh, at the catch of fish, when after all night, they catch nothing, right? And then the carpenter tells the fishermen, you know what, go back out one more time. And so Peter does, obediently. And they come back with this great catch of fish. And you'd think that Peter would, uh, would be just so excited. Peter's response goes on his face in a complete recognition of sinfulness and a complete recognition of the deity of Christ and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. Peter recognized exactly who he was, recognized exactly who Christ was. And then you've got Peter's proclamation when uh, the disciples were all sitting around and um, they had the little group together and they're talking and Jesus says, you know what, what do people think about me? Who do people say that I am? And you've got one of the disciples saying, well, I, I heard someone say that you were Elijah. And uh, one of the other disciples, you know what, I, someone was saying that you were John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And uh, someone else said, you know, I, Someone said you were the prophet. I can, you know, for the first time, for the first time, Peter's not the one talking first, right? He's listening to his buddies, and they're saying the prophet. Peter must have been coming unglued. Peter comes out of the background, I imagine, saying, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Peter nails it. Jesus says, Peter, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed by my Father. And so Peter demonstrates the sensitivity to spiritual things that is, is just wonderful. And then finally, at the, um, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, we see Jesus on the beach preparing breakfast 
for his, for his friends, for the disciples. And the uh, disciples are out in the boat, and uh, they're not sure who it is at first. And then uh, one of them, I think, I think it was John, maybe. Uh, John, you know what? I, I think that's the Lord on, on the beach. And Peter, Peter hears that. And you would think that Peter would be shrinking back with guilt, with shame, with just a, oh, man, Mr. Loudman, what was I talking about? And Peter, like, okay, well, you guys, you kind of see how Jesus is, is feeling right now. Not Peter. Peter, that's the Lord, strips off his clothes, dives in the water, can't get to the Savior fast enough. Unbelievable. Peter recognized the magnitude of the forgiveness from Christ. And so it's wonderful when we have these couple of books where Peter is talking to us and the Holy Spirit weaves with Peter's personalities and experiences the literal word of God into his messages for us and um, uses these experiences of Peter to, uh, to give messages for us. And so with that, um, the title and theme of this message is The Cross and the Crux. And uh, we're going to be, as I said, gleaning a little bit from 1 Peter chapter 1. And what I mean by the cross and the crux is these two elements of salvation that I want to talk about. The first is the cross. And by that I mean the cross of salvation, that, uh, that time, that moment when by the cross of Christ, through his shed blood for, his, for us, when the moment that the Holy Spirit regenerated us and we came to believe, when we became believers, that moment at the cross, that salvation that was brought to us, that's what I mean by the cross. And so Peter has this focus of this present sense of salvation at the cross. And so that's what I'm referring to here. And then by the crux, I mean our future sense of salvation at the moment when we're ushered into heaven and we see him as he is. The crux of the matter, we often refer to it, the apex of a matter, the most important part of a matter, our salvation in the future sense when we meet Jesus in heaven. Webster says that the crux is the essential element or the essential point requiring resolution. And at that point, salvation is completed and we're with him forever. And so Peter talks about this present sense of our salvation and also puts our eyes on this future sense of our salvation. And this is a common theme in scripture. We see this weaving of our present salvation and our future salvation many times in Scripture, besides here in 1 Peter, and I'd like to look at a couple of those. You're welcome to turn with me. You don't have to, but the first is in Ephesians chapter 2, where we have this idea brought to us by Paul. Paul says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins prior to salvation. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. There it is, the moment, the present of our salvation, the presence of our salvation. And then immediately in verse 5, the end of verse, the end of verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So Paul talks about the salvation when we were saved by his grace, and we're immediately raised up with him in heavenly places, this future sense of our salvation as well. 
Second Peter chapter 1, Peter mentions it again in his second epistle. Chapter 1, verse one, uh, 8 through 10, Peter talks about the character qualities that would normally accompany Christian life, should accompany Christian life. As we progress in our salvation, they accompany our life. Our knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. He talks about all these things that will be added. And he says, if these qualities are yours and an increasing in verse 8, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. This is kind of the negative aspect of it. But if these things are not progressing in our life, we've forgotten our salvation. We forgot that moment when we were brought out from under the wrath of God, when the weight of sin was on us, not only for now but for eternity, and we've forgotten about it, and we, we, we've, we've got disconnected with where we're going in life. But then immediately, Peter also mentions this future sense, because he says, Brethren, be all the more diligent, in verse 10, to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He immediately says, Don't forget your salvation, that which happened at the cross. And if you don't, your eternal salvation will be abundantly supplied to you. Hebrews 11, in verse 40, says that in reference to the, uh, all the people of faith described in chapter 11, at the end of it, the writer of Hebrews says, by the way, after all that, all those people of faith, remember, God has provided something better for us. So, apart from the, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Amazing statement. What was provided that was better for us is Christ. At the cross, Colossians tells us that that was the mystery of the ages, hidden, but has been revealed to you, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it's only two verses later in Hebrews 12, the familiar passage, it says, Therefore you have all these who ran in faith, lay aside the encumbrance, which easily entangled us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus' future, the author and finisher of our faith. And so Peter's goal here, where in 1 Peter chapter 1, this idea of our present salvation and our future salvation is woven together back and forth like no other place in such a short amount of time is here in this chapter. And so it's worth looking at because it's a common theme in scripture. And Peter, as we know, likes to go with both barrels. And so he does that for us in, in uh, chapter 1. It looks like what he's trying to do is anchor our lives firmly. He's got this anchor, and he's burying it into the reality of our salvation and wanting it to hold tight. And then the other end of the cable, he wings it into the, uh, the tabernacle in heaven, not made with hands, beyond the veil where we have an anchor, sure. And there's a cable between the two of unbroken faith. And he says, this is the way, walk ye in it. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll, I'll highlight a couple of the areas where Peter does this, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at it in a little more detail. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, in um, verses 1 and 2, he says, You've been elect, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. This choosing was our, uh, essentially our salvation at the cross. Verse 10 
As to the salvation, the salvation that was wrought for us at the cross, the prophets were making careful search and inquiry. And then in verse 12, with regard to this gospel, it says it was revealed to these prophets that the things that were announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. He's talking about the gospel that was preached to them. He's talking about their salvation. And then in verse 23, it says, You've been born again, not of seed that's perishable, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's how we're born again, through the, through the mechanism of the word by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter takes these and he's reminding us of this moment when we were saved. When we look back and say that moment at the cross, when the weight of sin was, was shed from us, when the reality of salvation was brought to our hearts and minds, Peter wants them to remember that, so he's anchoring their thinking into salvation at the cross. And then at the same time, he wants to paint on the horizon of their minds this future hope of salvation that he doesn't want them to forget. And so in verse 5, he says, you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So he's talking about in the future, the salvation that's going to be completed at the last time. In verse 7, he says, the proof of your faith is being tested by fire, but may it be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants them to keep an eye on the future. Verse 9, you're going to obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There's this element of salvation, this completeness of salvation that is the outcome of our life of faith. Verse 13, therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Weren't we brought grace now? We were brought grace at the cross. Of course we were. How much more, because we're seeing through a glass darkly, is it going to be brought ultimately when we're ushered into the presence of Christ at the completion of our salvation? Many historical figures echoed the idea as well. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous 70 resolutions, said, I'm resolved to think much about the day of my dying. That's an odd thing, unless the day of your dying is something that actually results in greater blessing, a fullness of salvation, seeing Christ as he is, having our bodies glorified. Okay, I'm with him thinking on the day of my dying. Matthew Henry says it ought to be the business of every day for us to prepare for the last day. And so like uh, many, Peter knows the importance of looking not just at salvation right at the cross because we tend to forget. In fact, it was Peter in his second epistle said, you know what, I know you know these things, but I'm going to stir you up so you're reminded because it's needful for you, it's needful for us. The cross of Christ brings us life, and in it is comprised our eternal life with him in heaven forever. So Peter's goal is, um, is this uh, constant focus on, on Christ. Uh, let me give you a little background. Peter is writing to a group of scattered disciples in uh, um, northern Asia Minor, the provinces in Asia Minor. And the reason they're scattered is because uh, Rome has been set afire. Many claimed uh, that Nero had, uh, was the arson. 
Nero uh, thought it more convenient to blame it on the Christians because, one, it would deflect blame from him and it would also give him an opportunity to persecute this sect, which he wasn't that excited about. They were, the Christians were greatly misunderstood. Many thought that they were disloyal, that they were unpatriotic because they talked about a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly king, Christ, as opposed to Caesar. They had a strict morality in private meetings that people were beginning to be suspicious of, wondering what was going on, so they didn't like that. And they were even accused, because of the ordinance of communion, that they may be cannibals, because they kept talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, and it's not right. And so they were greatly misunderstood. So there was this growing hostility of the people and the government toward Christians. And so the resultant uh, options were to stay in Rome and uh, continue to live a godly lifestyle and, um, and uh, possibly suffer fate such as being coated and waxed and torched or to be sewn up into the skins of animals and given to dogs or to be tied to live bulls and then sent rushing through the city to be battered to death. Or you could hide out, or you could flee. And so many fled. And so Peter knows that this group is vulnerable. He knows what it means to have passion and then lack perseverance. He knows what it means to be strong and then have stamina fade away. And so... He remembers, it would, think, it would seem, that Jesus himself said, Peter, I'm going to sift you like wheat. Or that Satan would sift him like wheat, desire to sift him like wheat. And yet when you turn, strengthen your brothers. And so I've got to believe that Peter's thinking of this when he hears about the persecutions and the difficult times that these believers are going through. And so in typical Peter fashion, because he knows that they're going to run the risk of spiritual dryness, Peter takes the, the fountain of truth and the fire hydrant of pure doctrine and just opens it up and drenches these guys. If you look in uh, uh, verse 1 and 2, you know, normally you start a letter, you say, Hi, how's it going? Um, things are going well. Hi, how are you doing? You, know, you start off with a little greeting. Not Peter. Peter starts off talking about their immediate, calls them the elect aliens. He talks about their temporary status on earth their permanent status in heaven. He talks about the attributes of God, his foreknowledge. He gives them the doctrine of election. He does a flyover regarding the ministry of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Talks to them about the lordship of Christ. Mentions the substitutionary benefit of the shed blood of Christ. And then finally at the end of verse 2, he says, oh yeah, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Gives them a little greeting. So Peter knows that if he gets the foundation right, he's, they're likely going to get the rest of it right. He knows it's true with us as well. The Lord knows it's true with us as well. We need to get the foundation right. And so Peter doesn't soft pedal. He exalts Christ and he demonstrates that whatever they're suffering, whatever they're enduring, whatever they're currently experiencing is less than nothing compared to the value that they have in Christ. And I don't say this to minimize suffering. We go through, you have gone through, you're going through, you will go through suffering of some type. And we're meant to console one another, to weep with one another, to comfort one another. So I'm not minimizing suffering, but I'm
but I'm saying the scripture helps us to put it in proper perspective, perspective and to allow it to have its perfect work in our life. These momentary light afflictions will produce in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, we're told in 2 Corinthians 2, 17. It's on this glory that he wants them to focus, and he does so by pointing them to the cross, their salvation, and in the shadow of the cross, how to live so that the essential feature of their lives, the crux, is rooted and growing and living and constantly focused on him. So in this first chapter, it gives us four elements of the cross that ensure our focus on Christ. The first is the, the citizenship of the cross. Peter sets the stage with regard to this temporary status um, by in, first, in, the, uh, in the first verse. It's not as clear in the New American Standard. I, I don't know if any of you have the ESV. The, the words, you are, you, to those who are elect aliens or elect exiles, is the way it is in the, in the ESV. And it's also the way it is in the Greek. Those two words are in wonderful juxtaposition right next to each other. You are elect aliens. Well, it's almost oxymoronic. It's like saying pretty ugly. Or, 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 or a sanitary landfill. Or good grief. It, it, uh, he, he, he wants them to recognize this. And that almost makes it so ridiculous that they have to have their attention riveted on this. He says, you're elect aliens. You're chosen, though you've been outcast. You've been placed in heavenly places, though you've been rejected. You're elect and precious to God, and yet despised and forsaken of men. He makes this comparison so they know exactly what ought to be the priority, the permanent, the election, the preciousness, the heavenly place, and he wants them to focus there. You're aliens scattered around Asia, and yet you're the very elect of God Almighty. We're aliens of Orange County, and yet we're the very children of the King of the universe. And we're supposed to reflect that citizenship of, of heaven. Part of that citizenship is that we have a living hope. It's living because it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, tested to by an empty tomb, realized by the 500 at least who saw him walking around after the resurrection. History has never been able to squelch the reality of the resurrection. And through the, histories, through the history, thousands and thousands of believers has, have attested to this by suffering and giving their lives for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us he's appeared in heaven for us and our entire hope is based on the promise of his return to those who eagerly wait for him. Out of the citizenship, we're also given an inheritance. In, the, uh, it, in verse 4, it says that we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Any one of those would have been pretty good. I, I'd be good with an imperishable inheritance. I'd be good with an undefiled inheritance. And yet, Peter uses three Greek words that all start with the same letter and they end with the same syllable, Apthartan, Amianton, Amaranton, and the effect is to have a cumulative power statement reminding us of the longevity, the purity, and the constancy of that which God has promised. And then he says, by the way, it's kept, reserved, guarded in heaven for you by God. The word's a military term meaning to set guard over. Secondly is the, uh, 
The second element is the cost of the cross. I want to spend the most time here, and, and um, I'm going to go long, so sorry. But uh, see, that's the benefit. If I'm the normal pastor, I, I know better. But I don't know any better, so I can go long. Um, the cost of the cross. With regard to the prophets and the Old Testament saints, we're told in verse 10 that the prophets who prophesied made careful search and inquiry. They wanted to know what was going on. I just think of Hosea. Think of Hosea. He's told you're going to have a wife of harlotry, and guess what? You're going to have children with horrible names, Lo-Ruama and Lo-Ama, no mercy and not my people. You guys should be glad. Luke, John, Sarah, normal names. (laughs) Hosea, and all this was to provide an illustration of the mercy of God, that one day he would call people back to himself. Ezekiel was told he was going to lie down on his left side for 390 days. And then on his right side for a little longer. Thank you, Lord. This is to demonstrate the weight and severity of sin. And Ezekiel to be saying, Lord, what is this about? Isaiah, who prophesied so powerfully about the coming Messiah, talked about the blessedness to the nations, that it was too little for all Israel, that it would go to the Gentiles who'd seen the glory of God. And then he was told, you know what? Keep preaching, Isaiah, but no one's going to listen. And his response was, Lord, how long? They wanted to know what was going on. And so there was a cost involved in these Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament saints were told in Hebrews 11, they went through mocking and scourging and stoning and being sawn in half and destitute and ill-afflicted. And in all these things, it was revealed that they were not serving themselves, but you. God provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be complete. There was a cost. There is a cost. The interest of the angels. There was a cost to the angels. We don't think about this a lot. I don't. But keep in mind, the angelic realm lost a third of their population when Satan deceived them. And then they're told they're going to be governed by believers one day. It kind of seems like a raw deal to the angels. But that's what Scripture tells us. And so they're interested. It says they long to look. They literally crane their necks to see what's going on. They have an interest in this. And then we have the planning of salvation. In verse 1 and 2, it says that this salvation was according to the knowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, by the shed blood of Christ, we have the entire Trinity, the entire Godhead was involved with our salvation, planning it out from before the foundation of the earth. Remember, names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth, all the way through to where the the Godhead was willing to pay the cost of separation, some mysterious sense that we don't understand at the crucifixion when he turned his eyes from Christ. So the Trinity, the Godhead, paid a price in the planning of salvation. And then finally, the price of the Son. Peter reminds us that we've been redeemed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. At one point when we had the gold standard, everything on the planet could literally be be evaluated based on gold. That's what we thought. That's how highly we thought of it. Scripture says gold, perishable. Blood of Christ, imperishable. 
a being of infinite value was necessary to provide the only worthy substitution to bear the infinite wrath of a holy God in order to bring sinners to himself. Verse 17, we're told to conduct ourselves with fear if we address his Father, the one who impartially judges during our stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood. Normally that verse is taken to mean that we fear because God is going to ultimately judge, but it's at least as strongly that we fear because we begin to recognize the high, infinite value of Christ. Several months ago, I was in the Shelby facility in Los Angeles, and they have manufacturing on one side, and the other side they have uh, some, a showroom of some of these Shelby Mustangs and Shelby Cobras. And if you're a car guy, I mean, these are like the, the, almost the cream de la cream, cream, unless you're a Chevy guy. But um, uh, I'm looking around, and the guy's saying, yeah, this is a Cobra. This is one of 20 made, and, uh, and, and these cars are spotless. And all of a sudden, I find myself, I got my hands in my pockets, and I'm like, man. Because it wasn't because I was afraid. It's because I realized the value of what I was in the presence of. That's how we fear during our time of exile on the earth because we recognize the value of what we're in the presence of. This healthy fear results in a constraining influence on our lives. And then we have the conduct of the cross. Verse 8 says that you have not seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Kind of interesting because Peter even weaves this present and future sense here too. Though you have not seen him, you love him, present. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. I submit that that's not possible unless we have these elements of salvation clear and constant and continuously in our heart and mind. Part of the conduct of the cross is to fix our hope. To keep this in mind, I, had a, uh, I was in Missouri for about a year and a half when I was 18, something like that. And uh, I was at a Bible study with a, uh, with a guy who, whenever I saw him in town, which was often because the town I was in had two streets, basically, and one stoplight. And every time I would see him, it didn't matter if it was raining, if it was winter, this guy would roll down his window, stick his head out with a big smile. He'd point upward. I thought, man, this is a guy who, he's got his hope fixed on things to come. We're told to be holy. Part of, the, part of the conduct of the cross is to be holy. I'm not going to belabor this. We know this. But two verses that have always stood out to me as being almost unfathomable is that it says that we are allowed to go through difficult times. These believers were, we are, in order that he might share his holiness with us. The Godhead giving characteristics of deity to man to share his holiness. Peter in his next epistle says that God has given us precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Godhead extending to man the character qualities of deity. Unbelievable. He says, you know what? Start to reflect that now. Lastly, we're to love the brethren. It's the only thing I'm going to say here is, in light of this value, in light of what we know, how, how can we do anything but? When we look around, we've got fellow sinners and fellow wretches and fellow you know, 
people who uh, go through everything we go through, and we recognize that we've been chosen by God Almighty to be his children, um, how can we not extend grace and love to those around us? We're told to love the brethren, and, and uh, again, in typical Peter fashion, he says, you, um, you've uh, given a sincere love to the brethren, you've loved them, and now fervently love them. Do it more. Peter, everything's more. Everything's bigger. Just keep doing it. So love the brethren. And then finally, it brings us to the crux of the cross. could even be called the conundrum of the cross. It's the, the, the cross is literally the eternal... The cross is the, the, the line of demarcation, the crossroad for all mankind. The eternal destiny of every person either has or will hinge on their relationship to Christ. C.S. Lewis said that if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I would say if, if you're not a believer in Christ, don't run the risk of plunging into the depths of hell, possibly tonight, when there's an opportunity this afternoon to cross over into the threshold of heaven. Recognize the danger of shunning the great cost at which salvation has been offered. Scripture says that God so loved the world that whosoever believes could have eternal life. And Jesus said, whoever will may come. Scripture says that today is the, the day of salvation. So the crossroad of the cross requires a decision for every person. You say, well, I don't even want to make that decision. Well, by a non-decision, passive acquiescence is decision. We've decided against. It's the crossroads of the cross. And then finally, the, the crux or the, uh, the culmination of the cross is what's been accomplished by the cross. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, it says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. There's no benefit of the cross unless we gain relationship with God. John Piper comments that what good is the gospel if there's no God to enjoy? What's the benefit of the salvation if we just live our lives nicely? Uh, Paul says we ought to be men of most misery if Christ isn't raised from the dead. So this is the ultimate benefit that keeps our heart resolute. Our salvation and the ultimate end is that we're brought into relationship with God to praise and enjoy Him forever. And this is what demands our constant focus on Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for the, um, the unbelievable work of salvation that you've wrought in eternity past and have um, brought historically to Jerusalem and the cross and continue to work toward for a time when the grace of your glory is praised forever. And um, for that, Lord, we're grateful. And if there's any here who have not experienced that, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would uh, touch their heart and that for all of us, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move that we might be drawn closer to you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.